Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12 is where we'll start uh, in this part of our assembly this morning. Matthew chapter 12. I am sitting this morning. Uh, one of the reasons I just felt like sitting. Is that okay? Uh, number two, uh, I actually, I have extra preaching that I'm doing today. I've been invited to, to preach in Spanish this afternoon by the Spanish-speaking church in Conway. So if you don't have anything going on, by the way, and you want to come hear me preaching Spanish, uh, that would be... I think it's at 315 today uh, over at the building. They meet in the building uh, at Prince Street in Conway. So anyway, I just thought, you know, if I can conserve any energy uh, for the rest of this day, I'm going to do it by sitting. So that's the reason I'm sitting. Uh, it is our Q&A morning, and so we're doing this a week late. Normally we do Q&A on the second Sunday at this time. Last Sunday, Chris Emerson was here, and uh, so we let him have the floor I decided not to bump him for our Q&A. We just bumped the Q&A back a week. So uh, for those who are visiting with us, this is a morning where I take questions that the members of this congregation have submitted, and uh, I've studied through how I would best answer those, and we go through them at this time. Uh, so this morning, uh, we're going to be dominated by just one question, and we're going to try to get to the bottom of it, but I decided as I, as I dug into it, there's just so much here uh, that I, it's going to take up all of our time and probably could take more. Uh, and that is this question. Um, what is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit and is it an unpardonable sin? So we're in Matthew chapter 12. Uh, the first thing I'm going to do, I'm going to try to break this down into some different approaches. And the first thing we're going to do is just go through the different places where this is discussed in the Gospels. So we're going to ask the question here, what is Jesus referring to in the context when he uses this phrase or this idea of the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? So let's get our uh, biblical feet under us here. We're in Matthew chapter 12. Now, in the context, uh, the, the Pharisees are being extremely hostile to Jesus. And back in chapter 11, he had berated the cities that didn't repent when they saw his miracles. Then the disciples are eating grain on the Sabbath at the beginning of chapter 12, and the Pharisees criticize them. Then they complain that he heals a man on the Sabbath a little earlier there, starting in verse 9. So they are then, uh, if you look in Matthew 12 and verse 14, they conspire against him how to destroy him. So things are not going well in the relationship between Jesus and the Pharisees, and that's going to set the stage for what comes here, beginning in verse 22. Matthew 12 and verse 22, Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, and so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can, I, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. All right, so Jesus casts out this man's demon, 
And that's a great thing. A man has been freed from the power of Satan. He can speak. He can see again. And the crowd gives the natural reaction. If we were to see this and we were to be in the crowd, really the typical reaction would be what happens in verse 23. In verse 23 it says, When all the, all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? So they're excited and they're wondering about the implications of this. If Jesus can do this, who is he? Is he a Messiah? And so that's their question. But the Pharisees kind of show a different twist because of their opposition to Jesus. In verse 24, but when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. So they reject the sign. In fact, they go a step further. They say Jesus is employing sorcery. He's doing this by the power of Satan. Satan is at work in him. Now, I want you to see that that is a little bit beyond the pale of the typical reaction. Sometimes we get reaction statements in the Gospels. Some people saying, oh, we believe, we don't believe. It's one thing to be unsure about Jesus' identity. And it is one thing to think he doesn't fit the messianic mold. I have some questions about where he's from. It's one thing to not believe in him and have your reasons. But it is quite another to see an obvious miracle that blesses someone and say, this must be Satan's work. That shows some kind of twisting of the mind. And I think that's what Jesus is getting at when he talks about their reaction. So first of all, you have a series of statements Jesus says to make their claim look ridiculous. Verse 25, knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? So he is talking here about the idea that, that Satan has infected a lot of people. He has possessed a lot of people. And now Jesus is going around casting out Satan, freeing the people. And he says, if that's what's happening, then there's sort of civil war in Satan's kingdom. It's all fighting against itself. Here's Satan gaining ground and then Satan saying, no, I'm going to give that ground back. And that just doesn't make any sense. It would say that there are factions in Satan's kingdom. And so he's saying, if that's what's going on in Satan's kingdom, then Satan has nothing to worry about. He's going to undermine himself. But that's silly. You see, he's saying this is an accusation that if you just thought about it, even for a minute, you would say that's a ridiculous accusation. It shouldn't have been given any air by the Pharisees. Verse 27 then, And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. So he says, do you make the same accusation against other people? Somebody else casts out a demon? Do you go around and say, oh, no, only demons are cast out by Satan? No, you would say, oh, this is great. Look, God has freed this person, and God has somehow empowered someone to cast out demons. I don't know who the sons are here. I don't know. He might be referring to the apostles, and the apostles they would consider as sort of their people, too. And they would say, wow, you know, we're rejoicing in what the apostles can do. Or it could be other people. We do have some... Uh, records in the Gospels of people who are not affiliated with this party of Jesus, this disciples, uh, this group of disciples that do cast out demons. The point is the same, though. He is saying, this is a reaction you have reserved for me. You don't look at demons being cast out and say, oh, well, this must be Satan at work. Verse 28, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. He says, maybe there's another explanation, a simpler explanation, that instead of this being Satan somehow fighting himself, instead of this being Satan bossing around his minions, maybe this is about someone who has conquered now plundering his opponent. 
And maybe that's what you're observing. Maybe that's the reason why the people who Jesus approaches who have demons are always crying out, please have mercy on us. Don't cast us into the abyss. And so Jesus is saying, maybe this is about hostility and opponents rather than people who are in league with each other. Then verse 30, whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. This is a whose team are you on question. And I, I think if you think about that statement, it's really powerful. He is asking them, so do you think this is a bad thing, what just happened? This guy having the demon cast out, now he can speak and see. You, you think that's bad? That Satan's at work and evil has happened now that this man has been freed from Satan? See, he's saying, if you are not with me in this, then you're against me. And you're against the good that I'm doing. You're trying to undo what I'm doing. So all of this up to that point is about trying to convince them that what they're saying is illogical. It doesn't make sense. And so he's trying to reveal to them the state of their hearts. But then in verse 31, there is a warning. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. So he sets up a contrast. He says, God will forgive all kinds of blasphemy except this kind. Blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Speaking against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But he says specifically, speaking against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven in this age or in the age to come. We'll come back to that in just a minute. So what he is saying here with this statement in verse 31 is that he's foreshadowing the forgiveness that's going to happen after his death that every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven. There will be forgiveness offered by God. And yet there's a warning that there are some things that are not going to be forgiven when that happens. So the tone is clearly a warning. You can hear that. You guys are on thin ice. You guys are close to the edge. With your response to me and the things you're saying about me, there is a danger that you're going to do something that you can't really come back from. And you need to be careful about the things that you're saying. So what does the Spirit have to do with it? Uh, the Spirit is at work in Jesus. And he even says, if you look in verse 28 there, if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons. He is saying, what I'm doing, the works that I'm doing, the message that I have, th these are about the Holy Spirit. And you are saying that the Holy Spirit is actually Satan, that I am possessed by Satan. So you are attributing God's work to Satan. You are attributing the Spirit and his teaching and work to Satan you still believe in God. See, this is part of the difficulty of it. You believe in God and you believe in Satan. You just believe that God is Satan. And that's wrong. I mean, that is twisted. That's what he's saying. That's blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. Uh, a couple more things. This is a little technical. Look in verse 31. Uh, I'm reading from the ESV. It says, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. So first of all, it doesn't say that it cannot be forgiven. It says that it will not be forgiven, that God is saying, there's a line here, I will not cross, okay, to forgive this kind of sin. And then in verse 32, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Now, there are two equally valid renderings of this verse. If you're reading from the New American Standard or the New King James, it uses an it. If you blaspheme, it shall not be forgiven or it shall be forgiven. But the ESV, the NIV say whoever, the person is forgiven rather than the sin or the person is not forgiven. So the reason I say that is because it's possible to take this to be talking about a person who reaches a state where they will not be forgiven. 
as opposed to just having a sin that he has committed, then that sin, no matter what state the man is in, that sin just cannot be forgiven. And I think that the wording is broad enough to allow either of those explanations. I also told you in verse 32, he talks about either in this age or in the age to come. Keep that in mind because what Mark is going to say, Jesus says in Mark, is that he is guilty of an eternal sin. Okay, An eternal sin is a sin that will not be forgiven in this age or in the age to come. It is a sin where you are. there's no assurance of forgiveness now and there's no assurance of forgiveness at final judgment. So my question was, what is Jesus referring to in context by this idea of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? I believe Jesus is referring to a group of people who have grown so hostile to him that they ignore the work of the Spirit, they call Jesus Satan, they resent the good he does, and they plot to kill the one God sent to save them. They have done more than call him a name. Do you see that? It's not like Jesus says, I can't handle your names. That one just, that one hits too close to home. He is saying they have definitively rejected God. And there is a danger there from which one can't come back. Let's go to Mark chapter 3. Mark 3. Mark, this is another rendering of the same thing. And, and we won't go into as much detail in this one because a lot of this we've already covered in Matthew's account. Mark 3 is set in a similar context. It's in a series of opposition stories to Jesus. You have the, uh, why are you eating with tax collectors and sinners? Why don't you, your disciples fast? Again, you've got a couple of criticisms of him healing or allowing his disciples to eat on the Sabbath. Uh, you also have in Mark's account, his family comes to get him because his family is saying, you're out of your mind. Okay, so you've got all of this opposition to Jesus. And then this, uh, Mark 3 and verse 22 and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And he called them to him and said to him in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. There, truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. All right, so we don't see Jesus casting out a particular demon here. That's not really the context given. We do see a few verses earlier back in uh, verse uh, 11 uh, that he had been casting out lots of unclean spirits. Uh, but... You have the same explanations here. A kingdom divided against itself won't stand. Uh, he explains a little bit further here in verse 26. His kingdom, Satan's kingdom is coming to an end. Uh, but he says it's coming to an end because I've conquered him. That's the point. All right. Then verse 28. Uh, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, whatever blasphemies they utter. But here's the exception. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So the one who blasphemes Mark's language is he never has forgiveness. God is unwilling to forgive this. The never and the eternal go together here. They're what Matthew renders as in this age or in the age to come, like we mentioned earlier. So the problem with this reading, uh, Mark's account makes it difficult for me to argue that this is simply a state of obstinacy that we come in and out of. You know, that sometimes we're really obstinate, and when we're in that state, we can't be forgiven, but if we come out of that state, we can be forgiven. It's just in that state, God's not going to forgive us. 
The reason is that Jesus says they have committed a sin that they are guilty of forever. That's what he says. He says they never have forgiveness. In verse 29, he's guilty of an eternal sin. Uh, Mark adds the explanation. Look at verse 30. In verse 30, he says, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So just in case you were curious about why exactly they are told this, it's because they are saying this specific thing that indicates something about where their hearts are. All right, so what is Jesus referring to in this context is very similar. A group of people who have so determinedly opposed Jesus that they have now pronounced him to be possessed by Satan. So he is warning them about the importance of that accusation. That accusation is more than you're not telling the truth about who you are. It is something deeper and it is a rejection that's deeper. All right, let's go to Luke chapter 12. We'll get the third one here and then we'll, uh, we'll start to try to pull some of this together. Now, there is a parallel to the two that we have just read, but it is different in Luke. Places where they accuse him of working with Satan to cast out demons. But in Luke's account, Jesus does not say this about the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit until Luke 12, which is in a different context. Luke 12 and verse 8. Luke 12 and verse 8. I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. So this is a very different context from the other two, where there was a specific statement, you're in league with Satan, and then Jesus had to sort of argue against that accusation. Here... He tells his disciples to confess him before other men. And then he has the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit in verse 10. So there's two possible meanings as I see it. Either he's warning them, don't deny me, or else in some way you've committed the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which by the way seems extremely unlikely to me because you actually have disciples that do deny Jesus and then come back. Or he's warning them about some of the opposition they will face, that there are going to be people who will speak against you and accuse you of being in league with Satan, just like they did me. And in similar ways, you will be opposed and blasphemed, and the work of the Spirit through you will be opposed and blasphemed. Jesus is reassuring them that God has your back, and that you need to understand that what they're doing is very serious in their relationship with God, too. So that ties well with the idea in verse 12 that the Spirit is speaking through them. All right? So all of that to say, you have another, a different kind of context where I believe he is referring to people who will blaspheme and persecute and harm God's people and attribute the work God does through them to Satan and willfully blaspheme them. So a little bit of a different context, but all of these uh, have this idea of the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So uh, before we leave the texts, these don't appear to be idle, random words. You know, it was an accident. It just slipped out. I said the wrong thing about the Spirit. I meant this, but I said this. It's not a slip of the tongue. They are the fruit of a settled disposition and opposition. So Jesus is not just saying, be careful what you say about the Spirit. Now, I, when I've taught on this before, I want to say, I think we should be careful what we say about the Spirit. Okay? Because I don't want to inadvertently say something that is going to mean more than I intend. But I don't think Jesus is saying this is just about idle words. I believe here it's about a settled disposition that is then expressed through words. Uh, he's not getting them on a technicality here. It also appears to me, and this is important, that I don't believe Jesus is talking about sincere seekers. Sometimes sincere seekers will say things as they search for the truth. 
That happens in the Gospels. You remember how Nathaniel says, how can anything good come out of Nazareth? Okay. Kind of ugly thing to say, right? Not, not only against Jesus, but against all the Nazarenes. But, but that's, he, he's thinking through it. How could this be? And sometimes in thinking through things, we're going to say things and say, that sounds ridiculous to me. I just don't get it. And we may say things that sound harsh and maybe things that we would say, ooh, that's, that's getting close to the line. But when we're talking about sincere seekers, we're not saying people who are adamantly determined that this is wrong and I'll never believe it. Uh, some people say he's out of his mind. Uh, some people make accusations against Jesus. I don't really think that's what we're talking about. There is something definitive about this. When you begin to conspire to kill someone for healing people, something is sick. When you assume that good things that happen to people must be the work of Satan, something is sick. When you work to oppose in every way what God is doing, there, there's something at work there that's beyond just unbelief. And I think that's what Jesus is saying with this. All right. Now, what about the rest of the New Testament? See, part of the difficulty of thinking about the blasphemy against the Spirit is these are the only times it's mentioned. That means the apostles, as they go out preaching about Jesus, never refer to this. Never. Not once. Do you see anyone saying anything about it? That means when people come to become Christians and obey the gospel, they never say, now wait a minute. Have you ever committed the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? I, to me, if this was that kind of thing, that would be the first question on the list. In fact, I would ask it before I started preaching. That way you could just save yourself some time because you're not going to be forgiven. Is that the kind of thing we're supposed to take from this? That there could be people, whoever they are, that have already committed this sin, and you know, you just that's the first question on the questionnaire. In fact, it seems to me that when you look at the New Testament, there's very little discussion of specific sins. You have a few, like I assume that Simon the sorcerer, when he becomes a Christian, they probably had a talk about his sorcery. It just appears to me. I know they did in Ephesus because the Ephesians in Acts 19 burn their magic books. They know to be a Christian means I'm going to have to change specific things. And it appears to me, though, that there is just not not a lot of the specifics of, now, did you do this? And what were you thinking when you did this? And what did you say when you did this? Instead, the gospel is offered as if whatever has been committed can be forgiven if people are willing to come to Jesus. Uh, I have, uh, this is 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Such were some of you means that we all have sins, specific sins, awful things we've done, but the were means that's who we used to be. And when we are sanctified and justified, now we become a different person. And now we can be forgiven of those things that we've done. God has transformed us. There is something else here too. I, I, for time's sake, I'm not going to be able to turn there. But I do believe it's an important passage. If you're taking notes, take a note on this. 1 Timothy 1 verses 12 to 14. Paul says specifically that I used to be a blasphemer and an insolent opponent. He calls himself the chief of sinners. Now, all the things that we mentioned back, oh, sorry, it's still up there. Back in this point, Paul did. 
Paul violently opposed Jesus. Paul plotted the imprisonment and sometimes the death of Christians. And I assume that if you were to put a microphone in Paul's face and say, Paul, is the, the Jesus movement the work of God or the work of Satan? What do you think he would say? He would have said, this is the work of the devil. And yet Paul says, I found mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. There is a possibility here that there is more to this than just saying, if we have these thoughts or express these things at certain times, we can't ever be forgiven. Paul was forgiven. Jesus appeared to Paul and told him all these things he needed to do to be a Christian. The other thing is that in the New Testament, uh, the gospel is presented as if anybody can believe and obey it. Go into all the world, proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Whoever does not believe will be condemned. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Okay, go into all the world. You don't see any asterisks, do you? Preach the gospel to every creature, except, except the ones that have committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. They don't, don't bother with them. Uh, the Spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. There's a fountain free. We sing it. Okay? Not just for those who have never committed the unpardonable sin. So, what I'm getting at by bringing all this out is that there seems to be very little in the New Testament about this, which would be shocking if those who reject Jesus can never change their minds and accept him. If that's the case, we're all out of luck. So any interpretation that would take the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit and say there must be a group of people who now can never obey the gospel has some challenge from the, re the record of the rest of the New Testament. All right? I'm running out of time. Okay. Uh, what, is a, what does the New Testament teach about hardness and rejection? I think this is another area that this sort of touches on. See, we can have hard hearts. And the Bible teaches that if we want to resist God and reject him, he will allow us to do that. In fact, I would go so far as to say God seems to allow that process to intensify and worsen. I would go so far as to say that sometimes God encourages that. I believe the New Testament teaches that. Let me, let me show you where I get that idea. Uh, in Romans 1 verse 28 since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And you guys know I've talked about this before. In Romans 1, he just says repeatedly, God gave them up, God gave them up, God gave them up. When they wanted to do wrong, God said, you just, you have at it. And he let them go in that direction. As we go down the spiral of sin, though, things get worse and worse. This is Ephesians 4, 17 to 19. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do and the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves over to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Do you see the, the spiral of poor thinking that's going on here? Futility of their minds, darkened in their understanding, callous. They no longer feel, they no longer care. And that that's what can happen. Now, I don't know if you've been in that position or in that state, but if you have not, which I would, I would hazard a guess that most of us have, we know people who are in that state or have been in that state. The idea, though, is that the harder we get, the harder we get, and that it's very easy for that to intensify until something breaks that cycle. 
This is 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 10 to 12. With all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved, therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now that, that passage gives us some pause, doesn't it? Because it says God allows them to believe. He sends them strong delusion. He deludes them himself. Now please understand... That's not saying God keeps people from believing things. It's saying that when we refuse to love the truth and so be saved, or when we have pleasure and unrighteousness, God's going to let us have what we're seeking. In fact, God will even encourage us in that. So, I want to say that that can even happen to Christians. Because the New Testament teaches that too. You remember we've talked about this a lot lately. Hebrews 3.13 Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, that you and I can be hardened too. And this is where all of those passages in the book of Hebrews fit in. The passages that talk about drifting away, or that warn about if we fall away, it's impossible to renew us to repentance. Or that if we sin willfully after we've received the knowledge of the truth, there's no longer sacrifice for sins. Or that we could be like Esau, who never had a chance to repent, even though he sought it diligently with tears. He did things he couldn't undo. There's warning in that. And I believe that's the same tone Jesus is using in his warnings about the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So, what does the New Testament teach about hardness and rejection? That we can become hard to God. That resisting him and resisting his call is not a small problem. It also teaches that that hardening can intensify to the point that we no longer have any interest in truth or in doing right or in righteousness itself, we become dead. Now, I don't believe that's precisely what the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is, but I believe that if thinking about this topic can help warn us about this, then it'll have been worth our time because it's important that we know we can reach that point. And I think we need to say there are some places we can get to where we won't come back. There are places we can go and we can become so hard and hostile to God that there's no way we're going to come back. No matter what happens, we will find ways to justify where we are. And that is a scary thing. When you have looked into the face of people who are justifying anything they want to do, and you see the, the deadness in their eyes, it is a tragic thing. And I don't want to get there. So we have to remain open to God. All right, so I've got two minutes here. One minute. What is the bottom line? All right, so if you're going to ask me the question, what is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? I will say, I think the blasphemy against the Spirit is this conscious, definitive, eyes wide open rejection of Jesus and his work and attributing such things to Satan. I believe that it is not casual, it's not incidental, it's not an accident. But the way the gospel is preached in the New Testament, it doesn't really seem to be a part of the discussion. So people who would listen to and be interested in the gospel don't seem to have any concerns about it in the New Testament. This is just not a concern. It's not on their radar. That makes me think that it's not an obstacle to people who want to come to Jesus. Very often I'm asked, this has happened to me a number of times, I've been asked about the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit by Christians who have fallen away from Jesus or quit serving him. And people assume, this is what they say to me, I just assume that somewhere in there I blasphemed against the Holy Spirit. Something I did, something I said, surely I've done that. And they assume that they've done wrong in such a way that God won't forgive them or can't forgive them. Now, sometimes it also comes from seekers who say things like, I just don't know that God could forgive somebody like me. 
Now, I know that sometimes that comes from sincerity and a heart that's broken by sin, and we feel so inadequate, unable to, to do what we know we need to do. And so I want to say to that heart, please understand, God can always forgive you. Remember, he offered his son to have your forgiveness so that you could come back to him, and he will have you back. So don't doubt his power, and don't doubt his willingness to forgive you. We know that's true because of what he did in Jesus. But I also want to suggest that this may be a smokescreen. I've had this happen where people will throw up the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit and say, you know what, it's probably not worth trying to come back anyway. I probably can't. I probably have already done too much. I've gone too far. And I wonder sometimes if that's just another reason in the list of reasons why they don't want to come back to Jesus or why it would be too hard to come back. And so it seems to me that if we're really determined and focused on serving Jesus, that option is always open to us. I don't see anything in the New Testament that would say, don't even bother. God won't have you. And so if that's the way we're taking the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, I think we're taking it the wrong way. We need to question our motives about that. But if nothing else, if you don't get anything else out of all of this, here's what I want you to get. These verses should remind us of the importance of having a humble, tender heart toward God. Always ready to listen, always ready to reconsider, always ready to follow God. Thanks so much for your attention. We'll be dismissed for our classes.